All right, we're live. Uh, welcome to the Friday q and I'm Mike Winger, a pastor in Southern California, here to try to answer your questions about the Bible, um, why we should believe it, and how to apply it into our lives as Christians. So in a, in a short way of saying it, helping you learn to think biblically about everything. That's the goal of this ministry. That's the goal of not, not only the YouTube channel, but the podcast, the website, the existence of Bible Thinker, BibleThinker.org, all that, just to help you learn to think biblically about everything. And the first question today is um, an anonymous question, but it says, what does it mean to worship God, quote, in spirit and in truth? Now, this is a phrase that most of us who are, have familiarity with scripture, we, we know this phrase and we know Jesus said it. It's actually in John chapter four, but here's how I often heard it taught. And, and this becomes like a, um, <clears throat> a preaching point when people want to talk about worship and about how we should worship God or can worship God, that we must worship him in spirit and truth. And the way I've often heard pastors, not, I'm not saying every pastor does this. I'm just talking about some of my own experiences. The way I've often heard some pastors say it or a teacher say it is they'll say that um, worshiping God in spirit, it may, maybe it refers to having a sincere heart before the Lord. Um, and it might refer to intensity of feelings. I think fewer would say that, but some would that it's like this intensity of feelings. Um, and others would even say that worshiping God in spirit, that part of the equation, spirit and truth, it refers to um, spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues and that sort of thing. And uh, th that you want to incorporate that in your worship or else you're not worshiping God right. Now, I, I think, again, a minority will say that, but that is those are some of the answers that we're going to get. Others will say um, about truth, what does truth mean? That you have to worship God in spirit and truth. They'll say uh, perhaps that truth is doctrinal accuracy. Um, and, and I use that term. I know this is not a popular phrase. I think it's the accurate term for it doctrinal accuracy because doctrine is, means teaching it means and it has to do with the things we believe about god about jesus about who he is and what he's done and so doctrinal accuracy and others will say truth refers to sincere hearts kind of like some say spirit refers to sincere hearts like yeah it means you're, you're being genuine you're not lying to god when you worship him and declare god you are holy i love you i praise you you mean it um and so there's an integrity there it's a sincerity a truthfulness but what I think often gets mixed, missed here is the context of John chapter 4. And that's when you start to unpack, I think, some other sides of this that are pretty neat. So let's look at it in context. Here's the text on your screen. John chapter 4, to just catch you up briefly, because this is 20 questions. It's not a full Bible study on, on anything. It's it's just sort of greasing your wheels to get you thinking biblically about everything. Um, so John chapter 4, Jesus goes and he has to pass by Samaria. Now, Samaria is like kind of non-Jewish. I mean, they would not consider themselves Jews, but they would consider themselves the 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 real children of Abraham. And it's super complicated. I won't get into all the details, but there's a rivalry between the Samaritans and the Jews. And the Samaritans claim that the mountain they have, Mount Gerizim, that that's the mountain God originally set up, not Jerusalem, and that you're supposed to worship in Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans also had a had a partial Bible. They 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 stopped after the Pentateuch, the first five books right of, of moses they stopped their bible there and didn't have you know psalms prophets those sorts of things at least this is this is what's commonly understood about them and um this rivalry was existing between them so that uh jesus at one point in his ministry he's passing through samaria and he's on his way to jerusalem and they make him go around they won't let him pass through because they find out that he's he's doing it as a part of a pilgrimage to jerusalem and they hate jerusalem and they're like no we're the real thing jerusalem's fake so he's there outside this, this town, uh, Sikar in Samaria. And there he meets this woman at the well and they get into a discussion and Jesus reveals to her that he's at least, if nothing else, he's at least a prophet. 
because he tells her about her her secret life, you know, that uh, he could not know any other way. When she realizes this, um, he re- she responds in verse 19. The woman says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet and our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that Jeru- in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So this isn't, I mean, it's interesting because it's not stated as a question. It's just stated as a fact. But the fact that she appealed to him as a prophet implies that she wants him to weigh in on this. Hey, you know, since you've revealed that you have information from God, okay, because you you have this information about me, about my private life, my marriage, and my current immoral sexual relationship. um, Now, deal with this issue for me, this big issue between us, the Jew and the Gentile, the Jew, sorry, the Jew and the Samaritan. And Jesus says to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, some interpret this part, Jesus is about to say the spirit and truth thing, but some interpret this part to mean, um, oh yeah, any, you could worship anywhere you want, doesn't matter where you worship, it never did. It was, it, you know, Jesus isn't even going to get into it. With I, I saw a commentary, right, a written commentary, one of the many commentaries that I have like in Logos software, and this one was not good at this point, and it said... Um, um, yeah, Jesus doesn't want to get into this debate about where's the right place to worship. Well, that's not true because he he later is going to show that that the Jews are right and the Samaritans are wrong. What he's saying is he's telling her there's a change coming. There's a future time coming when it's not going to matter whether you're at this mountain or that mountain because something is about to change. So then let's read on. You worship what you do not know. Okay, this this confirms that the Samaritans, yeah, you're 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 wrong. It's not Gerizim, it's not in Samaria. This is not the place. This is not the location. This, this however, is the cat. That's Mika. You barely, barely and rarely get to see her. <laughs> um, and um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, so you don't you don't know what you worship. This is not a compliment. This is not this is not Jesus affirming you really worship the real God. You just don't know it. That's not. <laughs> I know some people would like to spin it that way. This is in response to her question: Are we worshiping right? Right. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you guys say Jerusalem is the place. And he's like, hey, there's a time coming when it's not going to be about where you worship. Then he tells them, you don't even know what you worship. You think you're worshiping God. You think you're worshiping Yahweh, but you don't even know God. That's 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 not a compliment. This is him revealing the real nature of a false religious system. And Jesus was not ashamed to do that. He wasn't trying to be ecumenical uh, more than we're required to and supposed to by scripture's standards. Then he says, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So this would be very insulting to most Samaritans, but Jesus has revealed himself to be authoritative through the prophecy stuff he just did. And he's going to do more. And this is part of the outreach, part of his outreach to, to this other religious group. This sort of fake Jews, in a sense, that's kind of what they are, replacements for Jews that are not real, is to tell them that, that no, it's not about the Samaritans. God will funnel his salvation through the Jewish people. Okay, th- that's just some background. So there's the Gerizim versus Jerusalem context there. But the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such to worship him, such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Um, now, the, the conversation continues. Uh, we don't have to keep reading. She, she talks about the Messiah. Jesus confirms that he is the Messiah. So that's huge. It's absolutely huge. Um, <clears throat> but let's talk about this phrase, spirit and truth. Here's what I think is going on here. I think that the phrase worship in spirit and worship in truth relate to the things that she just asked about. 
right? Where are we supposed to worship? And are we worshiping the true God? Um, and the answer is for the Samaritans, no on both counts. So the, the where is the wrong question because the hour is coming when the where is going to be wherever you are because you will be indwelt by the spirit. You will worship him in spirit, implying for anybody who's going like, what are you trying to say? Mike? What I'm suggesting here is in spirit implies non-locality or, uh, in, or you become the locality of the, of the worship. The worship's happening right where you are because the spirit is in you. So in Jerusalem, up until this time, till Jesus' ministry, you need to worship towards Jerusalem or in Jerusalem or at the temple of Jerusalem because this is where the Spirit of God rests. This is part of the whole temple theology, right? And Solomon and the temple and the Holy Spirit rests there. God is not confined there. but this So this is not to contain God, right? Because God is spirit and he's not containable. Uh, not in that sense. But it was to be a funnel through which the worship of God happens through the temple because the temple ultimately represents Jesus and his sacrifice. And I recommend you check out my Jesus in the Old Testament series if you want more on that. It's amazing, amazing stuff. So the temple's a conduit. But Jesus, when you know, you can worship God uh, in, in worship in spiritually worship, real, real worship through the temple. But then Jesus, he sanctifies us. He makes us the new temple. You are the temple of the spirit, as the scripture tells us. And then we have First, First Corinthians six seventeen. <clears throat> he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So that now, like you are worshiping God in spirit, not just because you have good intentions; those are important, but that's not what spirit means here. In spirit, I think is mainly referring to you are born again and indwelt with the Holy Spirit. God is seeking people to worship Him, who will become the temple of the Spirit and then worship Him, and it won't matter where they're at. This is, wish I had more time to talk about it uh, for the sake of the Q&A, but um, this is amazing that Jesus is saying something earth shattering and changing about the nature of the temple and, and really where the temple is. It comes through the Jews. Jerusalem's important. This is where Jesus will die. This is where the promises of God are. You can't separate Jesus from the Old Testament promises, from the Jewish people, and from the from the from the even the location of Jerusalem. But the salvation he's bringing is so that you could worship anywhere, so that through the Jews salvation comes. But salvation doesn't come to you through you becoming a Jew, right? You don't have to go to Jerusalem, so to speak, and be part of the temple and part of the religious practices in that sense. You become the temple as part of the new covenant. Beautiful, powerful stuff. So in spirit, I think is talking, um, answers her first question. Hey, where are we supposed to worship? You know, here or there? And he's like, oh no, you're going to be given the Holy Spirit and you will become a place of worship. So it won't matter where you worship. That's that's powerful. So that means it only comes through Jesus. It only comes through salvation. It only comes by the grace of God. And uh, contrary, you could you could think of it this way. Jesus could have said, if he was to say the opposite um, of spirit, it would be flesh. That you have to worship God in flesh. Now, flesh could represent sin, but it can also represent your own efforts and your own works. But we will worship through God's grace, apart from our works, when we receive the gospel and are born again, and God's spirit indwells us relationally, intimately, personally, knowing us and us knowing him. That's how you'll worship. Doesn't mean spiritual gifts. Doesn't mean you'll speak in tongues. Um, doesn't mean those things. This is something every believer has. Every worship of, a worshiper of God has it must have if they're to worship God at all. So there you go. That's interesting, right? And it doesn't. And then it doesn't mean intensity of feelings. Although feelings may come alongside this, that's not what it's referring to. It's referring to, um, yeah, being indwelt by the Spirit. So then, what does truth refer to? 
What does it mean to worship God in truth? I'm on John 4.10. Let's zoom down to where we want to be. Um, here we go. So in spirit and in truth, <clears throat> um, this, this probably refers to true doctrine, I think, and true intent. You could say it's both of those because both of those are, are super important for us to have. The one that relates the most to the issue between the Samaritans and the Jews is the true doctrine one. So if you look at the text, remember that the, the text gives us hints at what is emphasized with those words. So we look at it and we say, hey, she's asking, where do we worship? Jesus' response is, okay, in spirit, you'll worship anywhere. But also, you don't even know what you're worshiping. Like you don't really know God because they don't have true doctrine about God. They have all sorts of twisted versions of of Jewish doctrine, claiming that they're the real people and all this other stuff. So true doctrine is super important. You need to have real knowledge of the real God and you need to be indwelt by his Holy Spirit. And then th these are the ones he wants to worship him. So yeah, now true intent is obviously important. <laughs> you can't be fake. Um, but I think the emphasis of this passage is true true knowledge of God, which is about knowledge, about what you know about God. And not Now, some would try to separate truths about God with relational knowledge uh, of experiencing knowing God. I don't think you can truly separate these. I think knowing about God and, and knowing God personally are connected, but they're not identical. But they are connected. You can't, in other words, you can't know wrong things about God a bunch of wrong things about who God is and still say you know God. Oh, well, I have wrong theology about who God is, who Jesus is, how he saves us, what about the Bible, all the doctrines of Christianity, but I know God personally. I'd be like, no, you don't. You're deceived. That's why you have to worship God in spirit and truth. There's my thoughts on that. Um, yeah, let's just go to question number two and <clears throat> making sure everything's working right here. All right. This question comes in from a person who asks a thing. Here it is. Uh, you and your team are such a blessing, and I couldn't have grown as much in my walk without without you all. Well, that's honestly, that's a huge blessing and encouragement. I give God total credit and thanks, and I'm just excited I get to be used as a vessel, a weak, pathetic vessel <laughs> for good things that he does. Um, you say, is Hebrews 1.1 a reasonable proof text for cessationism in relation to prophecy? Oh, interesting. Um, it says, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us through Christ. Are we in the last days? Paul refers to. So this is something I was hoping to go over in some detail whenever I get around to starting the Hebrew series, which I have to finish women to ministry, and then I got to focus on some another project, and then I can start that. Whether that's months away or what, I don't know. We'll see. Um, but let's give you a little answer to your question. So Hebrews 1.1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This is meant in Hebrews, it seems clear, there's a contrast. There's how God did speak and there's how God is speaking now. Now, uh, some would say that this contrast goes to show that God will not speak to us currently through prophets. This was something he did before, but when he speaks through the son, the speaking through prophets ends. Um, I don't think that's the emphasis of Hebrews. If you read the rest of the book of Hebrews, you'll constantly see this. It's not that one has ceased. It's that one has superseded the other. Um, so this is this is con consistent. The, the prophets of the Old Testament are still testifying and still speaking. 
And God is speaking through even even the scriptural prophets. He's still speaking through them. But they ultimately are not, how do I use the right phrase here? They ultimately are God's message to prepare you for the message of Christ. So they're still valid, still relevant. They don't apply to uh, us who are believers in Jesus the same way they would have applied to an Old Testament uh, Jewish person. You know, that's, but that should be, should be seen clearly when you just read the text in context. So how is this used? Um, it's used by some to say it's cessationism is true. Therefore, God no longer, the gift of prophecy has ceased and no longer is going to speak <clears throat> prophetically. So one pushback to this would be to, to say, and it's, it's a bigger Bible study than I have time for today, but to say, hey, when you look at Hebrews as a whole, you don't see this idea that when the sun comes, the other thing, uh, the everything else that Jesus is is superseding or, or is is coming to fulfill falls totally silent. It just takes a back seat, right? And and so the idea that there, if someone comes in your church and says, "I have a prophecy God has given me for you," that you could say, "No, God doesn't speak through prophets anymore." I mean, it's not technically what it says, right? It, it's not technically what it's saying that it's therefore nobody will speak prophetically. That's one pushback against that is it's not technically what it says. Um, further, there's other pushbacks from examples in scripture because what the cessationist in my view, and maybe I need to study this more. Uh, maybe I will when I do Hebrews one, you know, whenever I get around to it later this year, um, the cessationist would need to build a case that explains not just that prophecy has ceased, but when prophecy ceases, because you have you have churches who sit like Corinth, Ephesus, you know, who sit under apostolic teaching for years. Highlight this years with the apostle right there with you, teaching you things that are in scripture, things that you, you I mean, obviously they would have Paul would have talked more than the stuff you read about in his letters. So it's the stuff that. You're not, you're not even reading about it in the text of scripture. Paul was there able to talk to them about that. Now, I'm not saying it's it's stuff that's essential or stuff that's that's uh, therefore infallible and all that other stuff. What I'm saying is they sat under some really solid apostolic teaching for significant periods of time, and yet they still had prophecy ongoing in those churches. In Corinth, prophecy was ongoing, and he never discouraged it. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, writes to them to um, do prophecy the right way. In Romans, he gives them his knowledge of the gospel, so they have in Romans the knowledge of the gospel. Now Romans is a, a, an amazing book full of like this detailed fullness of the gospel of Christ right there in the book of Romans. It's amazing, right? Here Paul writes to the church in Rome. So so Corinth, I know I'm a little scattered today, forgive me, I'm just overly tired. Uh, Corinth represents a church where Paul ministered for years and they sat under apostolic teaching for years and they're still prophesying. So Jesus is already you know, his message has already come there and Jesus and God's still speaking to them prophetically. Um, in addition to that, we have Romans, who's kind of the other side of the coin. They're an example of a church who did not sit under that apostolic teaching. The gospel had gone some other way, right? Other people going to Rome. But Paul writes to them in Romans of this apostolic teaching of the gospel. And so he gives them his knowledge in the gospel. And it's amazing, book of Romans. But even in Romans, he encourages them to still prophesy. So for the cessationists, they have to, usually, my understanding is they have a view that the purpose of prophecy didn't just decrease, but it actually ceased, cessationist, right? It ceased when the gospel, the fullness of the gospel came. And so then you're like, well, yeah, at what point did that come? Uh, now, you, you may say, well, it didn't come until Revelation. It didn't come until after the final book of the Bible is written and then received by the local church. 
And it's like, well, that's not really clear in scripture. What I'm saying here is this verse, which I left on your screen on purpose this whole time, it suggests that if you're going to use this as a cessationist verse, the time of cessation is not revelation. The time of cessation is when God speaks to us through his son, that that's when it happens. In a sense, New Testament, Jesus beginning his ministry, John the Baptist, that's when that cessation would seem to begin, if you're basing it off Hebrews 1.1. Anyway, I, I like to give more insights in that. Um, I think what we're doing is, I think what's happening is we're misunderstanding the purpose of the Hebrews, uh, the letter of Hebrews, which is not about the spiritual gift of prophecy, but talking about how God spoke not to individual churches or individual people through a prophetic thing that God might give your friend for for you or something, but how God spoke to the nation of Israel collectively through these Old Testament prophets. God is speaking collectively to his people and he's laying down the gauntlet and he's saying, hey, you know I meant it when I spoke through the prophets, but how much more do you, mu you must know I mean it when I speak through the Son. You better hear him. You better listen now. Jesus is the final like gauntlet of um, receive my grace or 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 turn it away and receive wrath. That's the purpose of Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 here, I think. So let's go to question number three. This comes from Granny B, who says, thank you for your teaching on head coverings and hair. At my age and health, it's hard to manage my long hair. May I cut it chin length as long as I keep it looking feminine and still relatively larger, longer than a man's is simply maintaining that gender distinction, the important part. So Granny, I, I got to tell you, Granny V, <laughs> I got to tell you from, from my perspective, okay, um, this is, this is, don't take this as, this is scripture answering this question for you. This is me, Mike, giving his opinion to you uh, because I think the scripture doesn't answer. It just says longer hair. So I tend to have a, a more like flexible and hold with a looser hand when I don't have the exact def description of how long I think and R.C. Sproul said this and I thought there was a lot of wisdom in it uh, longer than a man's hair would be than a typical man's cut and a typical man's cut what's clearly a male haircut is is pretty short um, I think that if you have what you're talking about chin length hair that's it just looks feminine it looks like feminine hair that's a little you know a bit longer than I think that that seems reasonable to me and I wouldn't personally have any issue with it if anybody does have an issue with it I would just I would just let them know hey you know I if, if you you know this is with a clear conscience you do it then you say hey you know I believe I'm honoring the Lord in my heart here and I'd ask you to give me some uh, some room to disagree with you on this issue and um, yeah in my opinion, what you described, may I cut it chin length as long as I keep it looking feminine and still relatively longer than a man's. I think, yeah, I think that it doesn't mean you have to have your hair has to be longer than every man out there. There's guys with all different lengths hair and that would not, no girl would win or almost none of them would win. <laughs> so that would not be reasonable. Um, I think that seems like a good solution to me. Um, so yeah, thanks for asking. Let's go to question four, David Graff coming from a two works movement. Well, unfortunately, I'm not familiar with that phrase. I hope it doesn't hurt my ability to answer your question. Um, so coming from a two works movement, CHM. Hmm. Not sure what that is. I'm sorry. I've always heard 1 Thessalonians 5.23 taught as calling people to a second work of grace or an experience of entire sanctification. What is Paul actually saying there? Okay, I've heard a, some of these types of things and I've looked at them a while ago. Um, let me just try to give you what might be some thoughtful things. 
you can feel the all you all know in the audience you're like yeah mike's going i know i've heard of this i know i've looked into it a while back this, this idea of uh entire sanctification or a, a second experience a uh, second work of grace um but i don't remember enough of it to to answer directly so let's just look at the passage galatians f- uh sorry you put first thessalonians 523 now may the god of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Um, so this seem it would seem to me that someone's taking this idea that we you know I'm praying God would sanctify you completely, and sanctify here means like lead you in 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 uh, in a life of being sold out for the lord wholly belonging to him and living for him not worldly but but standing before him uh, in the world but not of the world like jesus prays in john 17 um so they're taking this to add on to it some doctrines about there being sort of a second experience that like christians are supposed to reach for where you reach like a, a entire sanctification um, if they're talking about in this life, maybe they're thinking about sinless perfectionism, like where you reach a point in your walk where you just don't sin, um, which I I have a lot of serious questions and pushback on that sort of doctrine. Let me just say this, though. All we have here is Paul saying, and we got to be careful here, when someone comes with a doctrine already in their mind, and then they find a verse that uses a phrase like, sanctify you completely. And then they use it to affirm a whole doctrine about a second experience of entire sanctification. And they have a lot of extra details that you don't find in the passage. That's when you start to go, well, are we thinking biblically here? Or are we just grabbing phrases out of scripture and using them to in, to um, support whole doctrines that aren't in that passage? All we have here is a prayer that God would sanctify people completely, right? He also tells them, like, abstain from every form of evil. Right, that that God, may God sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and body and spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does this mean you don't ever sin from then on, um, or is it a prayer in the direction of sanctification and holiness that He wants to see? Does Does Paul think He is this? I've, I'm entirely sanctified. I never struggle with sin. Um, I I don't think we can read all that into the text here. Then he says that God will do it. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So there's, I think there's two sides of the coin in verse 23. One side is, I, I pray that God would presently be working in you the sanctification that he will fully accomplish at the ultimately at the return of Christ. He's going he's gonna to give you a new body that is without sin, without temptation, that my final state of sinless perfection before God is going to be when I get a new body, a glorified body, that's something God will surely do. And may I be moving towards that in this current life. I think that that's how I would take it and to add more. You just have to ask the simple question, this extra thing they're adding, this extra doctrine, are they getting it from this text clearly? Or is this text more vague and they're adding a bunch of details we don't find in those verses? That's always the question to ask. Okay, we got all our questions for today, but let's go to question number five. So, uh, oh, and I have an announcement for you guys real quick. Let me do this before we get to uh, Tanawa's question. 
This is about a ministry. Um, so you guys know about the earthquake um, the in Syria, and there's a lot of people that are uh, absolutely devastated. It's overwhelming, the, 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 the difficulty, the suffering, the displacement, the poverty, the pain, all that. Well, there's a ministry called Restoring Faith that I've talked to you guys about before. They're Usually they work in Jordan and they're helping refugees who fled to Jordan from ISIS. But what they've done is they've, there's a couple there um, whose names are Osama and Abir, and they're heading out. They're actually in Syria now. And they're basically just giving food gift cards away to people to just help them have food because they've been displaced. They're in poverty. They're, it's pretty horrific. Uh, largely Christians that they're helping, but they're helping whoever they can. And in some cases, they're just giving them cash, okay? Because that's just what they need. I actually wholly, wholeheartedly support that. Um, personally, I'm like, oh, good. There's times where, you know, you just need to give somebody money, especially when their entire home has been destroyed. Um, so I'm excited about that. And I think the biggest issue with charities that I have, and you probably have too, is you just don't know who to trust. <laughs> like, I'm pretty skeptical by nature. I just don't know who to trust. And where, when I donate to a charity, is it... Is the money really going to help people or is it mostly going to feed the advertising campaign of that ministry so you know or to pay for the executive fees and all the overhead a hundred percent of this money goes right to helping people all of it does and um it's a super small ministry restoring faith super small ministry they don't have that many supporters uh, i just happen to know the couple personally and i trust them so i think they're doing real work and and really in in the name of the lord um so if you're interested uh, in looking for a way to help and one ministry, at least, the, at least that I think, you know, if they're if I'm being bamboozled, I don't know about it. I I, I think I trust this couple. I've known them and, and I've known their family for a while now, before they ever uh, even told me what they were doing. So that's about that. Let's go to question number five. This is coming in from Tanao, who says, "How much do my efforts influence situations?" when God is sovereign and in control. For example, my hard work versus God blessing my business or improving my health to extend my life versus God setting the number of my days. Um, uh, there's there's no real way for me to know how to answer this question because your life is extremely complicated. Um, and so it's, your life is just super complicated. Like, I hope this makes sense. Your effort to like live longer. So let's say you eat healthy and you exercise and you try to get good rest and you don't, you don't have like bad habits that, you know, make you unhealthy. That is most likely going to extend your life quite a bit. What if you get in a car accident tomorrow and I'm like eating healthy will extend your life. And then, you know, the Lord has a car accident, whether it's God's agenda or plan, or if it's just whatever happens, maybe you just didn't drive good or I don't know. You know, we don't know what goes on in the spiritual things. Um, so, how do you weigh the difference between what is God's sovereign will versus how much my effort? All I know is this is we do everything we can in our efforts, right? We do all we can with our efforts and we say, Lord, I hope you'll bless that. And ultimately we trust in God's plan, his agenda, what he's going to do. We just, we just rest and trust in that. I like what James says. He's like, Hey, don't, don't say I'm going to do business and go to this city and that city and do this. Instead say, Lord willing, we'll do this and we'll do that. So ultimately, you don't control your, your life, but you definitely influence your life heavily. Ultimately, God has like veto power over anything and everything you do and knows all that's going on in the world. But if we use God's, here's a danger, major danger. If we use God's sovereignty, the fact that he's in control of our lives as an excuse to not 
work hard, to not plan, to not pursue with godly ambition, good things. And then we're like, well, we'll see if the Lord blesses it. But we're being lazy and we're being irresponsible. We're not, we're not putting our full effort. That is, that is, um, don't think that the, the success or failure of what you're doing is just, you don't have an effect on it. I just think that ultimately, ultimately you have to just trust in God's will and his ultimate plan um, and his sovereignty, even in the midst of the effect you have. But yeah, uh, like th this YouTube channel, I've put crazy amounts of time and energy and work and effort into growing this YouTube channel. But I don't really feel like I want to give myself credit for how it has grown and how the ministry is reaching people because so many things are out of my control. Like I did everything I could, but so many other things are totally out of my control. Like I don't control the algorithms on YouTube and I don't control um, my own health or my, or, or those who decided to support the ministry and be able to be able to continue doing what we're doing, that sort of thing. I didn't control that. I was, I happened to go to a church where um, my, my pastor was supportive of me, even though I was full-time in ministry doing this as well, which most churches, I think that could have been a conflict to them, but he saw, he had, he had a heart for it too. So like things like that, that, yeah, you do everything you can. Um, I like the old phrase from Keith Green, do your best, pray it's blessed. Jesus takes care of the rest. So you're not off the hook, but you don't, you don't claim like you're actually controlling everything. <laughs> you just give God credit. Uh, Tyler Dyer says, uh, what does the harvest refer to in Luke 10? I've always heard it talked about uh, with evangelism, but a harvest implies the work has already been done and you're able to get the fruit of your labor. Yeah, so let's um, let's look this up. Luke chapter 10. Okay, I'm going to read through, well, let's read a bit of it here. It says, after this, the Lord, speaking of Jesus, appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And he goes on and tells them not to carry anything and all that. This was just for the 72. It's not like everyone has to do go out and carrying nothing. Um, so the harvest, harvest implies that there's tons of work already having happened. That's your question, right? Like, like you know, if it's about salvation, does this imply that um, let me read your question one more time make sure I'm understanding it I've always heard it talked about with evangelism but a harvest implies the work has already been done and you're able to get the fruit of your labor um, so for a for a farming culture the harvest is not where the fruit is, where the labor is done the harvest is the the most laborious labor intensive moment of the entire <laughs> of the entire farming cycle because now you're actually hiring laborers this is why Jesus when he has a parable about like hiring laborers it's for the harvest so when the harvest comes you have to bring in all this crop in a very short period of time and you have to store it all you have tons of work to do so this is actually a very labor intensive moment except the issue here is um that I don't think that this analogy about the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few is meant to talk to us about how people get saved. Like whether you get saved, like when I go out and har to do harvest, I'm not actually accomplishing your salvation. I'm just going out to tell people about Jesus. I think that the reason why Jesus refers to it as a harvest harvest 
is because the Old Testament prophecies had been going before him for all those years, hopefully tilling the soil, planting the seeds, and then watering them with, with the prophecies, with the work of God in Israel. And then now they're going out. It's the time when Israel's supposed to be ripe, when they're supposed to be received by the Messiah and supposed to rally to their king. And they ultimately don't. But uh, many individuals do, but as a nation, collectively, they don't. And so, yeah, this is, this is, it seems to me about evangelism in a broad sense, more specifically about Israel coming to their Messiah, there to go before Jesus saying, Hey, he's the Messiah. He's the one that we've been waiting for. And he's coming right behind us. And then Jesus comes alongside and he's even doing miracles and stuff like this is meant to be that time. Um, I hope that answers your question. I think that the farming analogies there related probably to the old Testament. The labor is there. You are a laborer when you're evangelizing, but your labor isn't saving them. Your labor is just calling them to Christ. He's the one who accomplished their salvation. I hope that, I hope that helps you out. Um, give you something to think about. Tyler Dyer, or did I already do that one? Uh, yeah, let's go to seven. Daily obedience has a question. Can Satan stop God's plan? I had to cancel a mission trip at the last minute due to something I couldn't control. But doors had opened and things fell into place for us to go. So it seemed like it was God's will. Um, first off, I'll just say uh, my heart goes out to you in the sense of like, I've I've had this happen where you think this and this and this fell into place in such an amazing way that I feel like this is what the Lord has for me. And then it just didn't work. <laughs> it fell through and you're like left going like, what, how do I explain that? And um and for me personally, when I had gone through that, I thought, I don't, I don't know how to explain it, except that maybe, and you're thinking maybe Satan thwarted the plan that the Lord had there. And I don't know. Um, I'll try to answer that in a second. But the way I explained it was maybe I was just reading too much into things that were going on and assuming that I could tell what God was doing just by watching what was happening in the natural. I could just see in the natural, well, this happened and that happened and that door opened, this thing was successful and this opportunity came therefore God it must have been the Lord leading this and I, I don't I don't know that that's always that reliable of a way of determining what God is doing um sometimes God does things like like in Hosea where he's like I'm gonna do something you wouldn't believe if I told you why because Hosea you just don't think that I will work in the way you're expecting so I've I've fallen on ignorance over the past many years, this was many years ago, I learned these lessons a few times and I've kind of gone, come to the place of just largely being ignorant. I don't know what God is doing with this or that or that. I just know if this looks like an opportunity to serve the Lord, why not try it? And if it doesn't work out, then I go, okay, well, Lord, it didn't work out. Um, is it possible though, you said, for Satan to thwart God's plans? I know that the enemy wants to. I know he wants to. Um, with Jesus, he attempted this by by getting Jesus crucified. This was Satan was absolutely part of the crucifixion of Jesus. Put it into the heart of, of Judas Iscariot to betray him, stirred up the enemy. You know, this was something that Satan wanted to accomplish. Um, with Peter, he wanted to sift Peter as wheat, so he comes against and attacks Peter. Paul's like, "Hey, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices." You know, so can Satan successfully derail something that God has planned? I, I think this is where we get into challenging language let me say this and, and and hopefully someone will make sense of it satan can successfully stop um 
through temptation and through ultimately us yielding to him, can successfully change what would have happened. But that doesn't mean he can ruin God's plans. Right? He can change what would have happened, but it doesn't mean he can ruin God's plans. So let's say that you're in ministry and you're serving the Lord and you start yielding to gross sin in your life, major sin in your life. Um, and then you end up uh, undercutting and undermining your own integrity in your walk. And eventually you get pulled out of ministry. Now, if you had resisted sin and said no, you may have had wonderful ministry and people impacted in different ways. And so you could say, hey, if it wasn't for you yielding to temptation and the work of the enemy trying to bring you down, if it wasn't for you yielding to that, other great things would have happened. God would have done X, Y, Z. But yet God knew all that would happen. And he factored it all in. Just like he knew Peter would be tempted. He knew Judas would betray him. Uh, he knew the crucifixion would happen. He knew Israel would, would, would depart from the Messiah. And he used it all for his glory. So that in, inevitably, even when Satan wins, in the long term, it will result in a loss. In the long term, it will result in a loss because God is going to work all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So Satan can have short-term victories, but will always have an ultimate defeat. And we can probably have times where something else would have happened differently had we prayed more, had we served God better, or or perhaps had uh, somebody else not been under the influence of the enemy. But God allowed that for an ultimate purpose. And... He will use it for his for his good. I, I don't pretend to know, you know, like I could just raise my hand and go, ah, that was the Lord and that was the enemy and this is what God was doing and this is what Satan was doing in that moment. I do not have that discernment. Life has taught me. I don't I don't have that discernment generally. And so um, I, I just say, ah, oh, Lord, I know you're sovereign. I don't know how to answer this question and I'm okay with that. Let's go to um, Tara Carlson. Tara says, 1 Timothy 3 verses 4 and 5. And Titus 1.6 seem to indicate that if someone desires to be an elder, they're disqualified by unbelieving children. Does this include adult children? The wife? What do these verses mean? Um, I don't think it speaks to the wife uh, in those verses, but l- let's look at what it says. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, it talks about those who desire the office of overseer. Um, overseer, bishop, elder, these are synonymous terms, not in your church maybe, but in the Bible they are. Okay, so I think biblically speaking, elder, overseer, um, bishop, depending on your translation, they're the same thing. Now, some churches really separate these terms into different categories and classes, but that's, that's that's not biblical. So I'm not saying they can't do that. I'm saying don't read those classes onto the scripture or you'll just be confused about what the Bible's saying. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So that's about the the elder. Let's look at that other verse before we answer this next question or the full question here. Titus 1.6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Um, so one of them was the children being in submission and the other one was the children being believers. Um, and so this implies that your kid's not two years old, right? Right, like, or one, you know, six months old. So there's that. Um, 
but the, the I think the way to answer this question of how old can they be where their behavior reflects on their parents is are they still part of the household of the parent? So there's obviously some gray area here, but but let's just say this. If they're under the household and under the leadership of the parent and he cannot train his own kids to be knowing Christ, uh, to be even at least at that young age, right? Because they make more decisions the older they get, at least be outwardly believers at the age of 13, 12, 10, 15. And if, if, if they're rebelling against the truth of Christ, then that could be a problem showing that he's not actually able to disciple people in his role as an elder. Now, this is a big deal um, because it impacts like people being qualified for churches, maybe a pastor watching this right now. Um, now, the um, that's a lot to unpack for a Q&A. I won't, be, I won't have time to. I'm just saying that I understand that this weighs in heavily in people's lives, and I feel that. Um, now, let's say that the person's 18 or they're 19, but they still live at home but they're in that in-between, like they're really not a child anymore. They're just living financially off their parents, but they're not children anymore. They're really like adults living off the money of their parents. I feel like this is more of a gray area. And if, if, a, if a kid was like, well, they were faithful till they were like 17 and they started going nuts. I feel like at 17, 18, you're not just responding to the leadership of your parents. You're becoming your own person. I would, I would think that um, there's more room for... Um, rebellion for us to have understandable rebellion there, even if you had good godly parents. Um, and so I, I, to my understanding, this is kind of something like John Piper went through. I don't know how old his son was. He's talked about it openly and publicly. This is not me spreading something there's like videos on it and stuff that he's done. So, um, it's not something where I'm spreading that, but, um, but they had a real dilemma in the leadership of the church. Like, Hey, is, is he violating this passage by having a kid and you know, who's basically a non-believer and, uh, they really wrestled with it and, and I would wrestle with it too. And I appreciate that they did wrestle with it, but that would be my answer is, well, he's, he's moving into adulthood. He's no longer under your, under your, uh, your parentage in the real full sense. And so we should take that with, um, wisdom, take that with wisdom. So the reason is because it's about him parenting and controlling his household. It's not about how faithful will his kids be when they're 30 years old. Like you don't control other people's lives. Like you can't just hit buttons and make people follow Jesus for the rest of their life, but you can train them in the ways of the Lord. And we want to see leaders that are training their kids in the ways of the Lord. And that that's evident. Um, you had another question. Does this include adult children? So my answer would be no. Uh, does it include the wife? Um, I don't think so. I don't, I, I'm inclined not to, it doesn't expressly say the wife. He could have easily said the wife is included there. The only time the wives are mentioned is in first Timothy, where it talks about the, um, the, the wives of deacons who themselves seem like they have deacon type duties. I take these to be women who have deacon like duties, but what's interesting is this is handled. And this is super important that you hear me clearly here. Cause a lot of people have written to me when I did my study on first Timothy, um, about the qualifications for elders and they didn't understand how this worked. Or at least how I how they didn't understand what I think about how this worked. Um, you have a section on elders. It starts and it ends. It ends. That's important. Then you have a section on deacons. It starts and it so it talks about elders all the way here. That seems to be referring to men the whole time. Then you have deacons where it's referring to men. Then it has a little section where it talks about the women must also be, which is talking about like a a wife of a deacon or what I would say is a female deaconess. And then it continues talking about deacons after that. So the only 
women that are discussed explicitly in the qualification section are in the role of a deaconess or the wife of a deacon, if you don't have that view. That's it. There's no discussion about the qualifications for the elder's wife. So I would then not want to put qualifications on her. And especially in the early church, you might have a man who gets saved, who's a very godly man, who's going to be training his kids in the ways of the Lord, but his wife is still pagan. And does that mean he's disqualified for ministry? Um, I don't think inherently it does, but what do you guys think? <laughs> Let me know. Um, yeah, God give us wisdom. So Billa has a question, number nine here. Hi, Pastor Mike, and God bless you. Uh, thank you very much. I could use that. Uh, how are we to relate to fallen brothers in terms of fellowship and to cult members with hospitality, according to 1 Corinthians 5.11 and 2 John 1.10? Two very challenging passages. 1 Corinthians 5.11. Look at this one first, because this is about. So you actually have two passages. One is about uh, people who are brothers, but they're in gross sin. By which I mean major sin, not gross like icky. <laughs> major sin. Um, the second passage is ultimately about false brethren. Uh, neither of these passages is about non-believers, actually. So let's make three categories here: a believer that's in serious sin, that's unrepentant, unrepentant. Then there's a false believer, and then there's non-believer. Okay, these are three categories. So let's look at the first one. 1 Corinthians 5.11, but now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. We do not mean those who are repentant about those types of sins, who says, oh, I failed, I repent. Oh yeah, full restoration, of course. Um, but those who are in ongoing sin, read the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. It's about people in unrepentant, ongoing sin, and the church does nothing, it doesn't care. And he goes, no, 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 you can't even eat with such a one. This is talking to the church about who they can eat with as a church. That's huge. It's not even saying you can never have a meal with a, a, a person who's, say, in open rebellion against God. I mean, maybe you want to do it just to outreach to the person. Hey, can we get lunch? I haven't seen him in two months. Let me check in on him. Let's get lunch. You get a bite to eat and you go, hey, how are you doing? Are you walking with the Lord? Are you are you ready to come back? We miss you. Um, that's not, it's not like he's ruling out every single possible situation where you might be eating. Any individual might be eating with an individual like this. But rather, the, the church in Corinth was having group meals as part of their normal weekly fellowship. They would have these, in Corinth, they call them love feasts, agape feasts. It's about the agape love of God. And they would gather together. And so don't allow them to be part of your fellowship. So as a group, they're not in your group fellowship. That, I think, is the main teaching here. They're not in your group fellowship. Don't eat with such a one. Right? Um, so the, um, the application there is that don't allow Christians who, I should say, people who name the name of a brother, say they're Christians, but are in serious open rebellion against God and they won't repent. Don't allow them to, to think everything's fine. You're just part of the, the brethren. Purge the evil person from among you is a statement about uh, as a group, you can't just have them in your fellowship, part of your fellowship, part of your group without dealing with a sin issue. Uh, our attitude instead is to, we want them to come, but we have the, the line of but you need, to, you need to lay yourself down before the cross. Are you ready to do that? Um, or else it's going to mess up everybody. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. But that's not about non-believers. That's not about um, false Christians. 
who like cults who pretend to be Christians and aren't. This is so I, let's handle that differently. Let's look at the next passage. That's Second John one ten. Not that you would pretend you had fellowship with either of those groups either. I'm just saying it's not directly about that. Um, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, this is about who Jesus is and what he's done. So if they don't bring you the right teaching of the gospel. Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Um, this is in context tra- talking, I think, about traveling um, ministers, itinerant ministers. They might refer to themselves as prophets or in the early church. And they go and they say, hey, oh, I've come from whatever city, you know, I've come from Corinth and here I am visiting you in Smyrna. And I, I, I just ha- want to talk to you about Jesus and talk to you about God. And, and of course, I'll need a place to stay as a brother because they, they're not doing, they don't have Motel 6. You, you'd stay in people's homes. What was happening is traveling missionaries and itinerant preachers and all this prophets, they would stay in someone's house. They would eat someone's food. This is how they would survive while they preached their message. He's like, do not support them because if you greet him, uh, not meaning say hi, <laughs> some people have literally took this to mean you can't even say hi. Um, greeting him, I think it means welcoming them into your home with hospitality. Ah, come in, come in. I'm greeting you. Come in. Um, so don't bring them into your house. Don't give them such a, such a greeting like that. I think that's what that's referring to. And it means I'm not going to help you on your journey to preach false teachings about Jesus. I will not pretend it's okay. I won't act like we're ecumenical here. It's okay if you have a wrong Jesus and a wrong gospel. We're ecumenical here. I'm not going to play any games like that. I'm not going to take part in the wickedness of what you're doing. So how does this relate to, um, um, let me see, where's your question? Uh, fallen brothers in terms of fellowship, cult members, um, so like, let's say a Jehovah's Witness comes to my house and I think, oh, I really want to reach, reach them. I'll give them a bottle of water to help them on their journey. I'll, 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 I'll invite them in and provide them with snacks and food. And it's like, well, I don't think I'm going to do that. Um, I'm not assisting them here. I am A, reaching out to them to repent and, and see the truth and deliver them from the deception of this cult and B, combat the false teachings that they represent. So I, I'm not going to play a game where I act like I'm being so generous and nice by feeding them food and giving them all these things. I know what's going on here is there is a gospel that is completely at odds with the truth of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to, I'm going to fight against that to rescue them from it and to, and to rescue others from it. I'm not going to assist them on this journey. Um, but let's say that you're not assisting them on the journey. Let's say it's Mormons uh, and you invite the missionaries over to your house that night and they're going to stick around and eat dinner with you and hang out and talk. And if you invite them for dinner, you get a long conversation and you get a lot of opportunity to outreach to them. And you're not inc- you're, you're feeding them is not actually helping them on their journey. They're just going to eat dinner somewhere else if they don't eat it here. You're not assisting them in any fashion. Then I would say, okay, on the surface, it would seem like you're rejecting this because you're invited to your house, you gave them a greeting, you fed them, except your greeting, your feeding, your invitation didn't do anything to help what they're doing. It did everything to, to try to outreach to them. And so I would think we have to understand the, the the spirit behind what's being written and not just the the letters themselves. That's my best understanding of it. Um, I hope you guys will offer your own understanding. You can in the comments as well. And let me know what you think. I think we get, we get the heart behind this. Yeah, don't help false teachers 
We stand and, and, and die for the gospel of Christ. We do not assist anybody who's preaching something otherwise. Otherwise. And if they say, well, then you don't love me. Well, then that's, they're just, they're just gaslighting you. <laughs> We're not going to play that game. Um, all right, let's go to number 10. Salt of the earth, 77 says, if I have a friend who's not saved and I've tried to evangelize them and only been met with resistance, do I need to stop hanging out with them? Thank you. Um, I don't think that there's a, a, a pat answer for this question. Uh, so life is complicated and friendships are varied and there's all kinds of different relationships we have. And so I don't, I don't have a pat answer. What I have over the years developed is just some principles to consider. So put these in your brain and you think about it. Um, is there long-term potential for still outreaching this friend or is it kind of a waste of time as far as outreach goes? That's one concern. Um, second concern, and this is a big one. Are they, uh, I, I'll put it differently, um, because I'm, I don't want to feed into the narrative of like toxic people and stuff like that, that can, it, there's a truth there, but it can also turn into just us being narcissists. Um, so the question is, this is, is this relationship connected to me disobeying the Lord in some way? So let's say that you, you hang out with this friend, you guys get together and you find yourself saying and doing things that you think are wrong as a Christian to say and do. And if the answer is yes, then there's a, there's a reason it has nothing to do with your friend. It has everything to do with your obedience to Jesus to say, I need to either, uh, maintain my witness with this friend, or I need to like change what I'm doing because the activities we do together are compromising my walk with the Lord. That usually has been the thing I've found that people struggle with is they go, yeah, when I get together with this friend, it's like, and then, and then you might tell yourself, but they're, they're a tiny bit better. They don't cuss as much when I'm around, or they don't do this as much when I'm around, or they don't, they don't oogle after women as much because I'm there. And so this becomes a justification, but you're doing all those things more than you would. In which case, guess what? You're not really being salt, are you? You're, you're, you're not being light. You're, you're conforming to the world instead of transforming. And so that, that would be a big red flag to consider. Um, and the third thing to consider is what, what are you doing with all the time and energy you spend at this friendship? What else would you do with that time and energy? Uh, would you be doing more outreach? Would you be building other friendships? Would you be a, a better father or mother with your family? And so you want to ask those types of questions too. So the Lord give you wisdom. There's a few things to think about. Yeah. We do want relationships with people that are non-believers. And the older you get, the harder this is because your, your friend circle just gets smaller and smaller the older you get. And the new people you meet, that list of new people gets smaller and smaller, naturally speaking. And so um, we do want those things because we want to outreach. But is it really outreach is the question. All right, Jags83 says, why does God allow success for celebrities that don't follow him? Example, Cardi B, rappers, etc." Um, I, I guess I, let me, let me, let me put, spin this around and give it back to you in a different way. Why does it matter if Cardi B is really successful? Why do we care? Now you might say because she's helping corrupt the minds of others with her music. I haven't learned, I don't know Cardi B music, right? But let's say that she's corrupting people with her music and that sort of thing. And it's like, yes, yes, the, the world is, is is a consum is a consumer of corruption and so they're they're going to lift up those things regardless um but when i look at the rich and i look at the influential and i look at the powerful and the wealthy in this world i should see it biblically and say they are chaff they will fade away in their pursuits 
and their riches will burn. I don't care how wealthy they are. I care that spiritually they're, they're in poverty and that they need Jesus. They need salvation. Who, the person who has Jesus and has nothing has so much more and more lasting riches than, the, than Cardi B or fill in the blank, uh, anybody else out there. And you can see it in their own lives. Um, the, the vanity of it all, the, 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 the promise of wealth doesn't, you know, it, not that wealth doesn't help in many ways. It's not, it's not like it's all bad, but it's all going to burn and it doesn't bring the satisfaction your soul needs. That's for sure. So, um, in a sense, I would say first, just recognize that they're, they're, they're not prospering as much as you think they are. They're not as important as, as you or anybody else thinks they are in the sense of compared to other human beings. Any random person on the street is as important as Cardi B or any of these other really influential, really rich figures. Um, I just, I just don't care about them and their, and their, their, I should say about their status and their riches, I care about their souls, I care about them as humans. I just don't care at all a lick about their status and their riches. There's really famous actors, really, really wealthy and really well known and stuff. It's like, okay, <laughs> does that matter? Not really, not in the real world, not not in, not in God's economy. So, um, why are they prospering? I think the the simple answer is God is allowing this world to be in its rebellion against Him. This is a season of grace, a time when they can turn, but they can also rebel. The free will of man is running rampant around the world, and this allows salvation to take place all over, but it allows sin to take place all over as well. And eventually, God will put this season to an end. And he will rule and reign in righteousness. So they have a temporary time and God allows it. Um, and I'm okay with that. But yeah, as Christians, don't, don't think highly of people that are famous because they, they do music <laughs> and, and uh, famous because they, they tell stories people like, um, has nothing to do with their character. Think more highly of that guy, you know, that's just a super faithful dad and employee. Think more highly of that woman you know, who's just been such a wonderful mother and she's been just kind of steadfast and caring for others and doesn't care if anybody notices her. Think highly of them. All right, Hold the Mayo has a question. First Corinthians 14, 27 to 28, says that someone should not speak in tongues unless there's an interpreter. But how are they supposed to... Um, there we go. Hold on. I got to tell Logos to stop indexing. Don't index while I'm streaming. Um, sorry. First Corinthians 14, 27, 28. It says someone should not speak in tongues unless there is an interpreter, but how are they supposed to know if there's an interpreter present? So first Corinthians 14, 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, there it is on your screen. Let there be only two or two or at the most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Well, the only way you would know if someone is there to interpret is by just pausing the service or pausing the moment. You know, someone speaks in tongues. Obviously, Paul's not expecting them to speak in tongues for an hour straight. So they speak in tongues. There's like some sort of a brief message they give and then you stop. Is anyone here to interpret? Maybe if they feel they have a lot to say in tongues, they would just have to stop partway through. I feel like I've got a lot to say, but but you obviously can control yourself still. God doesn't take over your body, so you have no control over yourself. So you speak in tongues briefly, 
you stop. Is there anyone here to interpret? And if no one's like, I am, I have an interpretation, then the rest of that is just between you and the Lord silently or but go away and do it, you know? Um, it's just between you and God. It's not for the public. So the, the, the simple practical answer is you have to pause, ask, and then react to the situation. And this is how I've seen this done in, in, the, in, in the settings where I have seen someone, um, someone speak in tongues and when they were being, I think, responsible leaders in the room, they said, hey, is there someone here to interpret that? And um, I think that's the only way for that to work. My, my, my two cents on it, for what it's worth. Question 13, Christian Warren says, what is a correct approach to reach someone you care about who's dealing with suicidal thoughts? Thank you for everything you do. Um, um, there's no simple pat answer to stuff like this. Um, I, I, I think that maybe, maybe giving you a pat answer, oh, do this is potentially dangerous. Um, people who have suicidal thoughts are not always the most stable people to talk to. And you're worried you're going to trigger them. And it, it's, it's, it's just concerning and it takes a lot of wisdom. And so I would say, here's a pat answer that might work pray a lot make sure that you try to understand them as best you can think about the reaction you'll have and i would do some research online the, the thing we have now that people maybe didn't have in the past is we have access to a large amount of data online about things like suicide suicidal ideation um, ways to address that sort of thing and so i would consider doing some research into that stuff yourself if you have someone in particular you're thinking about um, in the past when I've been able to talk to people successfully who've been thinking about suicide, it was always because I had built a relationship with them at least to some degree first. Now it's easier as a, as a pastor, I'd be like teaching and they'd see me ministering to people. And so that would make it easier to build kind of a bit of like a, I'm here to help kind of relationship. And then they might, you know, come and talk to me. Um, and in those, those, those times it had helped, uh, but man, I, I just be nervous about giving you just pat answers. Um, on that so uh, i'm going to move forward because you're we're playing with people who are un, unstable in, in some ways just to be honest right those who are suicidal suicidal ideation is not a stable mindset and um i'd be concerned that uh, too much of a cookie cutter response would would cause harm instead of good so I'm, I'll, I'll just leave it at that um question number 14 Brittany Howard says in the King James Version, 2 Kings 8.26 and 2 Chronicles 22.2 give two completely different ages for Ahaziah when he took the throne. How can we account for this? Oh man, it's been forever since I looked into this. I think this might be part of my series where I went through evidence for the Bible. I might have talked about Ahaziah. Might have. I, I'm not promising. <laughs> um, interesting that you say King James Version there. So let me... Let me look just a bit. Well, that brought up a whole bunch of stuff that didn't help. Huh. Um, just, I just totally ruined my whole setup on Lagos. What was that about? Um, hold on. There's a way to fix this. I'm, I'm confident. <laughs> um... Yeah. Okay. All right. Tell you what. Um, I'm I'm just having trouble with the logos right now. 
So what what I'll do is I'll just encourage you to to check this out on your own a little bit. Um, the nice thing about these sorts of like supposed contradictions is that they're so well tread. People have asked these kinds of questions an awful lot um, that oftentimes you can find good resources uh, online. And I know you're like, well, aren't you my good resource? Yeah, but I don't have that answer right off the top of my head. So. Ah, look at here. Let me give you guys a, sh I'll give a shout out to gotquestions.org. I'm going to read to you what they said. We'll talk about it briefly. There's an article from gotquestions.org. I think that they're in, a, in many ways, a very reliable website. I, I appreciate a lot of the answers that they give. Um, do we agree on everything? No, of course we don't. You don't agree with me on everything and that's all right. So here the question is, was ah Ahaziah 22 years old or 42 years old when he started his reign? And they list the two passages, 2 Kings 8, 26, 2 Chronicles 22, 2. They say, uh, the book of Kings and Chronicles cover much of the same history of God's chosen people. The books of First and Second Kings take the perspective of the northern kingdom of Israel. The book of First and Second Chronicles focus more on the southern kingdom of Judah. Those are good things to know about those books. But the same kings are mentioned in both histories. There's some question about King Ahaziah's age when he started to reign. Um, this is King Ahaziah of Judah, not King Ahaziah of Israel. One record says Ahaziah was 22 years old. Uh, the other record says he was 42 years old, at least in some translations. Okay, some say it, some don't. All translations of 2 Kings are in agreement Ahaziah was 22 at the start of his reign. And most translations of 2 Chronicles 22-2 also have his age at 22. However, some versions, such as King James, New King James, ASV, NRSV, state that Ahaziah acceded to the throne when he was 42, not 22. There are several theories to explain the discrepancy between these two passages. So here are four different theories. You guys ready? First theory is that 2 Kings records when Ahaziah began co-ruling with his father Joash, while 2 Chronicles records when Ahaziah began ruling on his own after Joash died. Uh, this is very relevant. There's like different dates for kings, even in history, that are confusing. They even have different terms for it in history. Those what's called like a regnal year and stuff. There's um, when the king functionally was ruling and then there's when the king was officially sitting on the throne and when they're sitting with their parents still alive they're not quite in that full capacity so there's one theory is that um that this is just a difference between yeah when he wrote ruled when his dad was alive and versus when he ruled after he died the second theory is the 42 year age is that of ahaziah's mother athaliah the theory is based on the peculiar wording of hebrews in Hebrew of Second Chronicles 22.2, which literally says the king was a son of 42 years. So they go, oh, that's kind of a weird wording. Maybe it's talking about the mother, how old she was. Doesn't seem like the strongest answer to me, but something to think about. Uh, the 42 years, this is a third one. The 42 years is a reference to Ahaziah's age, um, not to Ahaziah's age, but to where he came in the history of his family's dynasty. Ahaziah was in the family of King Ahab of Israel, which Second Chronicles points out that dynasty began with his father Omri. The lengths of the reigns of all kings in this family are as follows. Omri reigned for six years, Ahab for 22 years, Ahaziah for two years, Joram for 12 years. That's a total of 42 years. Maybe this was not about, maybe it was about his family, how long his family was there and not, uh, not his, his age. Since Ahaz Ahaziah began to reign in Judah in the last year of Joram's reign in Israel, 
Ahaziah would have ascended the throne in the 42nd year of that dynasty in Israel, which explains his being called a son of 42 years. Ahaziah was a son of the dynasty of Omri, which is in its 42nd year when he took the throne. If this theory is correct, then 2 Kings gives us Ahaziah's age and 2 Chronicles gives us the age of his family's rule. Here's a fourth possibility. And I appreciate, now some are like, what are you, can't you just keep making all these possibilities? I think actually it's important to recognize there are multiple ways of, of dealing with supposed contradictions. And when you start to look at them, you go, oh yeah, okay. Um, part of the power of supposed contradictions in the Bible is getting you to have a really simplistic surface reading of a text and not look deeply at it. Part of giving you multiple possible answers is forcing you to look more deeply at the text and then you go, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just like when someone goes, well, you're contradicting yourself. And often they just don't know the context of what you were talking about. All right, here's the fourth one. Somewhere in the centuries long copying process, maybe a scribe made an error, changing the 22 years of second Chronicles to 42. Very easy to make errors like that in with numbers in, in old Hebrew. Um, not all the Hebrew manuscripts reflect the error as a couple of ancient translations, the Syriac and the Arabic each have 22 years, thus bringing them into perfect alignment. So this is where like textual critics go, hey, some manuscripts say 22, some say 42. Which one was the original reading? And one possibility is that 22 was the original reading, 42 was a corruption. Uh, adding support to this fourth theory is the biblical historian's note in 2 Kings 8.17 that Ahaziah's father, Joram, died at the age of 40. Therefore, Ahaziah could not have been 42 years old when he took over. Right, So that's actually pretty interesting. Okay, He, he couldn't be that old. His dad wasn't old enough for him to be that old. Um when he took over, Joram could not have died, could not have had children before he himself was born. That would be a, a mighty task. And so Ahaziah's age when he began to reign must have been 22. The original manuscript of each book of the Bible being directly inspired by God was free from all error. However, a few copyist errors crept into the Hebrew manuscripts as they were passed down from one generation to the next. In this case, the numerical notations in question varied so slightly that a smudge of ink, a wrinkle or a tear on one copy could have led a scribe to write 42 instead of 22. That's, it's true, again, the numbers are the easiest thing for like a tiny little damage on the manuscript to, to change a number. Um, so anyway, that's got questions in response. Not my answer, but there. So I'll give them all credit. Uh, thanks, gotquestions.org for being a great resource. And there you go. Something to think about. Um, I don't know which one for sure I would go with. I, I think as a Christian, it's you're, you're, very, you're very safe saying, I have three maybe four reasonable ways to explain this supposed contradiction i think therefore we should rule it out as proof that the bible is in error and in contradiction of itself when there are very reasonable ways to reconcile it you don't have to know for sure which one uh, you can say that it's just reasonable to reconcile it in multiple ways <laughs> that seems to be a pretty strong response to anybody who would accuse it of being an error Raymond Link says, I'm a new Christian and my brother is atheist. He was brought up, uh, he has brought up the question of what if God is lying about everything and this is all a big cosmic joke? How do I combat this thinking? Thank you. Um, Raymond, I'll be frank with you here. Um, this, I've heard this thinking before and it's usually from people who are highly resistant. That is, um, when someone's highly resistant, really far-fetched possibilities feel very likely because they serve a purpose. Okay, this is, I'm not accusing every human of being this way. I'm not accusing of every atheist of being this way. I'm saying in your description here, 
feels a lot like that, right? So let's say um, somebody really wants to quit their job. Like that's their, they just want to quit their job. They don't care what happens in their life. They just want to quit their job. And you're like, you're going to be in poverty. And they go, yeah, but I might win the lottery. And that's what I'm talking about where they go, oh, but I might win the lottery, right? I mean, I might just win the lottery. You don't, you don't know if I might win the lottery. Maybe by quitting my job, I'll, I'll meet someone while I'm playing video games online and they'll offer me an even better job. And these are super unlikely possibilities, but they're going to grab them because they're useful to their purposes. The, on the face of it, the actual possibility that Christianity is actually a joke, God playing a joke on creation is so ridiculous. It's like saying, I'll quit my job. Maybe I'll just win the lottery. <laughs> and, um, maybe it's more likely to win the lottery in that case. This would require not only, not only that atheism is therefore false. So your friend actually now does need to find God. He needs to figure out what God does want. Because this 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 require his theory here requires there to be a God, um, but it also requires that God has made it look like Christianity is true. So now your friend would, in this theory, he'd have to be acknowledging that the evidence for Christianity is really solid, because that's the the basis of this is that Jesus really did rise from the dead, that that miracles really did happen in his name, that the Bible really is this revelation from God. But on top of that, his theory is that but God's totally just trolling you the whole time. This is so monumentally foolish on the face of it. I don't know that you have to really respond except to look at him and go, really explain to me how that works and allow him to talk because it's in him extrapolating and explaining how this theory works that hopefully he'll start to laugh at himself in a good friend chuckle way, right? Where you call your buddy out for saying something crazy. This is nuts um, to think. God called Israel out. He gave him the Ten Commandments. He did miracles with the Egyptians. He he laid out the groundwork for the Messiah throughout the scriptures. He has Jesus come, die on the cross, rising in from the dead, sends the disciples out there to preach the gospel to the world. All this stuff happens that on the surface would make it look like Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that you can have eternal life if you just trust in him. Everything about it sends the signals that that's true. And for zero reason, with no evidence, he's like, it's a troll. <laughs> it's just a cosmic prank. Um, you just need to hold up a mirror so he he gets to see that in himself. Uh, this is a resistant will. I don't want to yield. I don't want to yield to Jesus. I, I, I don't see how this could be anything other than that. So... Um, one way to do this, to hold up a mirror is you don't try to prove it wrong. You try to get him to prove it right. So you say things like, this is where, um, Greg, uh, Kokel's book tactics is really helpful. Like you, you, maybe you should study that book, Greg Kokel's book tactics, really useful stuff. Um, they just did a new edition of it. And the, um, the questions you can ask are things like, uh, what do you mean by that? When he says, oh, it's a big cosmic joke. Say, what do you mean by that? Just let him talk. Just let him talk for a while. Then you ask why do you think that's true? Why do you think that's true? Like, and you ask him to give you evidence to demonstrate the truth of it because you've provided hopefully here evidence for the, for believing Jesus. So now he needs to provide evidence for why this is a joke. What makes it evident that it's a joke? And let him talk and let him try to build a robust, th a thoughtful case for this because it's just going to be full of ad hoc arguments that hopefully he will see. You can see him, but you've got to get him to see him. Do all this with a loving and gracious and gentle attitude. But, um, but yeah, 
there's some thoughts on that. It's all a cosmic joke. Um, I've heard, and, and there's some atheists who take this very seriously, the evil God theory, that God's really actually, he exists, but he's actually evil, not good. He's all evil, not good. Uh, this to me is, is along the same lines, although more philosophers try to take it seriously, or at least, at least sometimes philosophers take things seriously by not believing it, but by feeling they should entertain it anyways. Um, and this is where being wise, trying to be wise can make you do foolish things. Anyway, 16, uh, Acularis says, Ephesians 5, 5 says that the sexually immoral will have no place in the kingdom of God. Yet later Ephesians says we're saved through grace, through faith. Is this contradicting? Um, so I, I mean, obviously, no, I'm going to tell you, I don't think it's contradicting. Um, let's read Ephesians 5, 5 and get that on our minds here. Be sure of this here. I'm, uh, I'm going to switch to the ESV here. Uh, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Yeah, but weren't a lot of the Ephesians in the church, weren't they, didn't they do that stuff? He says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. This is speaking in the sense of like gossipy, uh, where, where, you, where you vicariously enjoy it by talking about it, I think. Um, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible for anything that is becomes visible is light. Um, so how do you reconcile this with how you're saved by grace? You, you reconcile by saying, look, even if you're a sexually immoral person, you are not saved by stopping your sexual immorality. But if you are saved, you are indwelt with the spirit and God does a work in your heart. You have genuine belief in Jesus a real attitude for his lordship and a work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, you're not going to just continue in the same sin to the same degrees. Um, another verse is 1 Corinthians 6 where he talks about the same list. This list of people will not inherit the kingdom and he says, such were some of you, past tense. So this comes up a lot and I've dealt with this in the Q&A many times, but I'm okay with that because I, I think that sometimes things need to be rehashed and restated many times. I think that my, my own understanding of this theologically is this. For, for you to consider. Um, th th consider two clear categories and then two fuzzy categories of people. A Christian who's clearly a Christian. As far as you can tell, you have real strong reason to believe they're Christians. An unsaved person who's clearly unsaved. Okay, you've, you've got them. Then you have the, these other categories where you've got like a person who um, claims to be a Christian, but they're really not saved. And then there's a person who claims to be a Christian, they're, they're safe, but you, but you can barely tell, right? Like it, they're, they're in that fuzzy zone and you have these groups of people who you go, are you the unsaved person who pretends to be Christian or are you the saved person who just has a lot of compromise, but you're still going to be saved? I don't know how to unfuzzy these two groups personally. I know there's warnings towards them. I know there's warnings towards them. Hey, if you're living these lifestyles, you're, you're not going to inherit the kingdom. But how do I know how much sin is so much where I go, you're clearly not saved. Now, am I saying that your your sin made you unsaved? No, I'm saying your sin reveals 
that your claim to believe in Jesus is not genuine. You don't have real faith. But how do I know, like, where exactly, where's the exact moment where I go, one less issue of sin, you'd be saved. One more, you're not. Like, I don't know this. You don't know this. We don't know this. So there's this fuzzy zone where Paul just warns people. He goes, hey, look, if you're in this zone, like you're in the scary zone, get over here where your life is clearly in Christ because you're scaring me. Um, this doesn't mean I go around saying you're saved, you're unsaved. Um, look, if you reject Jesus, you're unsaved. If you embrace Jesus and your life appears generally consistent with the gospel of Christ, I would be like, I'm, I feel confident you're saved. But if you're in that zone where it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to be hopeful. I hope you're saved. I just don't know because I have these warnings in scripture and I'm not sure how they apply to you. That is a unsettling reality. Um, a lot of pastors feel compelled to tell everybody who's even remotely in this group that they're all saved. And this is very heartwarming. And I feel the compulsion. I want to tell you that, but I don't think it's biblically true. I think it's okay to be a little scared sometimes because your lifestyle is contradicting your claims of faith and go, yeah, I need to get serious about Jesus. If that's you and you're listening, then it, then the, the answer is not to grow despondent or depressed and not to be all woe is me. Those are all the bad things that got you into this situation. The answer is to turn your faith and trust in Christ genuinely and to, and to really have an attitude of repentance and pray, God, help me have a real attitude of repentance here and then bear the bear fruit that shows that that was genuine. And that's the only solution is turning your life and focusing on Jesus. It's not abandoning. Well, I just give up then. Like, this is what got you into this mess, that kind of thinking. You need to come to the light. That's the only solution. Um, 17, Mike Moore says, if all meats were made clean, then how can Christians interpret Isaiah 66, 15 through 18, as that passage, I believe, refers to Christ's second coming, and in it, he destroys those who eat unclean meats. Let's look at the passage. Isaiah 65, 66, verses 15 through 18. And I don't, I don't have a solid, uh, I'll, 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 I don't have a final conclusion on this yet for my own self. I'll share a couple thoughts with you. Uh, for behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by the, by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword will all with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens following one in the, in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations. And he goes on. That's beyond the passage you're were, you were referencing here. Um, uh, so let's say this is at the second coming of Christ. Um, let's say that that's correct. Because because I'm not sure. The end of Isaiah, the very end of Isaiah, it, it I have questions myself about whether I would assign that to the millennium, to the final judgment. I, I'm not, I'm not at the end of, you know, at the end of the millennium, the beginning of the millennium, basically, because I'm premillennial. Um, others who are amillennial will look at this very differently. Um, and so there are some things I hold here with a bit of an open hand. God's definitely going to come to judge. Um, uh, some, some would say perhaps these verses, he's going to be judging everybody, right? But in particular, he's going to come against those who are violating these these policies that he gave Israel. And you could say, well, that's for those who are still Israel, still under the law. Um, 
and that he's not going to judge all the nations for eating pigs. He never told them all they couldn't eat pigs. Um, but the um, another another option is to simply say, oh, okay, but this is this is metaphorical as a Christian. You go, okay, the unclean thing that as Christians we uh, we look to the spirit, not the flesh. We look to the the fulfillment, not the image, not the picture, but what it what it represented. So the unclean stuff that we're supposed to abstain from is not foods, but is carnality, sexual immorality, uh, pride and jealousy and envy and all those sorts of things. There's actually places in the New Testament that juxtapose the the outward stuff of eating versus the inward stuff that we need to deal with. Jesus himself is like, it's not what you put in the, in the mouth that makes it unclean. It's what comes out of a person. And this is where all of our sins come from is our desires. So I would lean towards interpreting it in that sense say oh yeah this this represents what those things represent these abominations that we're committing with our lives that represent uncleanness um that's one way to look at it there i don't have a solid final answer for you on it because i still have my own questions on this passage of scripture and along this along with ezekiel some of the contents of ezekiel about all the rebuilding of the temple the last several chapters of ezekiel really i'm still wondering about that myself yeah Number 18, Dennis has a question. When is the right age to evangelize? I'm 15 and I used to evangelize and many believed, but I got also into trouble. Police, school. Uh, my pastor told me to wait and learn God's word till I'm mature. Um, well, I would I would be inclined to listen to your pastor here, Dennis. It might, you know, when, as, as, as an older person, at least to you, <laughs> I'm an old guy. Um, when I would look at a student and be like, hey, you know, maybe we should wait on this. It would, it would honestly be because there's there's uh, there's ways in which maybe they're misrepresenting and they don't know yet because they just don't have the knowledge yet. And so um, if you are going to evangelize people, a witness to people, share with people, I would do so where you limit yourself to what you know and you don't go beyond that. You don't try to know everything and just say, hey, you know, I'm 15. I'm, I'm growing and learning. You know, I, I know the gospel of, of Jesus. I know I know that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't see why you couldn't tell people about Jesus at all. But... Perhaps your pastor understands your situation better than I do, and there's something specific you're doing. There's specific activities that he's he's actually trying to kind of kind of hold you back from. I, I had a student like this one one time where I was like, yeah, maybe don't debate with your teachers about this issue and that, and he he didn't heed me on it. And later he was really upset about it. <laughs> um, but the the reality is that I I could see that he didn't have the maturity to go with with what he felt like was his knowledge on these issues that were secondary issues, not not things that we should be. Um, making our whole thing, so there may be that. Um, what I would what I would say is go to your pastor and ask for clarity on this. Um, seek wisdom from him. What do you mean by that? What where, where where do you think I need to grow? Seek maturity and know that this is just part of a long long term plan God has for your life, for your growth and your maturity and your wisdom. But I would not. Um, I wouldn't muzzle yourself from telling people about Jesus. But I'd imagine your pastor has more than that in mind when he says, hey, slow down. Maybe it's not just the gospel. It's, it's some other specific things. Ask him. Get his wisdom on that. Maybe that's why the Lord has him in your life. I pray he, he's a good guide for you. If you have any questions, if you have doubts about the wisdom he's giving you, confirm it with another another older Christian who you can go to and say, he's saying this. What do you think about that? Do you think that's valid? Yeah, God give you wisdom. Uh, Joe Ferrucci says, how do I help my dad, an unbeliever, who thinks that religion is used to control us. He also says, if God exists, where was he when my father was beating my mother and I uh, and I cried out to him? 
Um, so two very different things. Um, one is um, religion is a tool to control people. Um, this is a, a this is a, like a bit of a a challenging one because in a sense, uh, religion does seek to give you rules for your life. Every in, including genuine Christianity, there are rules for how you live your life. Um, but people should be like living based on moral rules, right? Like, you know, so this is a bit of a challenge to say like, no, it's not. Religion doesn't seek to have any control over your life. Um, <laughs> that, that wouldn't be true, but it's also silly. If someone goes, I think that no, I should have no control in my life. There should be nothing controlling my life. I just do whatever I want with no controls. That's also like evil, like actually evil to live that way, to live that lifestyle where you just do what you want. And there's no control. So then he might be like, yeah, but I want self-control. I just want the control to arise out of me. And I, I think here we're getting closer to the target. The real complaint is I don't want to have to submit to any idea of what God's telling me to do. And then we get down to the main issue, which is this. Is the religion real or is it fake? If the religion is real, then, then I want those rules. If the religion is fake, if it's false, I don't want it. I'm like your dad. I don't want it touching me. I don't want that false religion making fake rules up to mess up and ruin my life. But I'm, it's not that I'm actually worried about being controlled because I want to have proper controls in my life. How do you explain this to someone who just throws it out there like a one-liner? Um, maybe it's talking about the nature of Christianity with your dad. And so, you know, what's interesting about that dad is... Um, you know, when Muhammad did his religion, he made it, he built an army and he took over and he slaughtered tons of people and stuff um, and, and spread his religion in, with a sword literally to control people. And they have a whole Sharia law thing like they are actually trying to control people. Um, more importantly, Islam is not true. And so it's fake false control that comes from man or Satan, not from God. But Jesus, he came and he led no army and he lived a perfect example and he he was the one who lived the perfect under control life to deal with the out of control lives of humans. You know, Jesus models a different kind of way of living than what we see from other religions. That's important to look at Jesus and examine Jesus. I would encourage your dad to read the gospels and look at the person of Jesus and consider him. I hope he will. I hope he'll consider it. I know how it's like dealing with a dad who doesn't want to hear that stuff. Um, but uh, it, it, in my younger years, especially, but um, but maybe you could talk about how Christianity is different fundamentally, um, but also maybe change it a little bit because he's thinking in categories of control and you could ask him like, well, you know, would you want to know the truth about God if, if there is a truth about God? And of course, he's going to have to say yes. Think, yeah, of course, I want to know that. And if God wanted you to do something to live a certain way, would you want to live that way? Well, Okay, yeah, no, probably. Okay, probably I would. Maybe, probably. Well, think about it. <laughs> I'm guessing how he'll respond. And then you can say, so the real issue when, with religion is when it's man-made. When it comes from man and they're pretending to talk in the name of God and they want to control you. And he goes, yeah, that, that I can't stand. And then you show him Jesus where he rebukes the Pharisees because they made up man-made rules and they put it in the mouth of God. You have your 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 uh, your rules from men, and you pretend that they're commands of God. And you show Jesus cared about authentic, genuine religion, real relationship with God, real truth from God, what God really wanted, not just about controlling people.
and maybe that built a bridge. Your second issue, he says, if God exists, where was God when my father was beating my mother and I cried out for him? Um, the problem with th this kind of question is that even a true answer is probably not going to help if a person's in a state where they're just not ready to hear that. So a, a true answer, like, well, God was there, you know, the whole time and he had a plan for you and he didn't cause it and God hates it and God will deal with your father if he doesn't, if he doesn't, either he deals with your dad's sin, beating your mother on the cross and that man comes and is changed and how wonderful for him to be transformed into a new person so he's not even the same old guy anymore and his sins are paid for or he deals with God and he's going to be punished for his wicked sins that he did so God will deal with it one day but he's he allows us free will for a time he allows evil to happen for a time but he's working good through it all it doesn't mean it was good but at least he's doing something with it like are these answers going to help his heart i i doubt it i doubt it um and so those are questions where sometimes you know in your actual relationship with your dad my encouragement would be sometimes you don't try to fix it you say yeah dad that's so horrible i i i know god will deal with him one day i know he'll deal with him one day and 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 i know that i believe in jesus and i want you to know him and because sometimes these are not intellectual challenges they're emotional challenges and you just have to have the wisdom to be able to know how much you want to chase it down so um yeah what he's dealing with here is i'm angry and hurt about the past why didn't god keep that from happening i don't i don't i don't know the specifics of why that didn't happen i know things about it that are comforting to me right and and, and have i gone through stuff uh yeah have i experienced some pretty horrible things in my life yeah and i know that god has comforted me maybe that's part of the answer See, dad, I don't know. I've gone through, you know, I don't know what you've gone through with your dad, but I could tell you some stories that I won't because I don't want to embarrass my family, to be honest. But um, I love them and I don't, I don't want to take all the worst things that they've ever done and throw them in front of the world to see. That's not my agenda here, at least not until they're gone. Um, and then I, I mean, maybe I can share that without without hurting people. But the, um, the reality is I can say this is I know that the pain I've gone through, I've been really comforted by the Lord. And dad, I don't know exactly why everything was allowed and why all that happened, but I know it was not God who did it. It was, it was, it was your dad who did it. And I know that God is the comfort for you. God is the one you can turn to and he's the one who can bring you peace. And you point him there. Um, there's answers for his, his questions. It's just that whether those answers will actually help as much as just pointing him to the one who can bring him peace. God give you wisdom. Let's go to question number 20. Um, Olson media has a question last one for today what is the biblical response on what a christian should do if they move into a haunted house i know hauntings are demonic and i've been there i've been there before for three years what do i do if it happens again um so some people will come up to you with like a with a formula um, you have to have a special deliverance minister person come out and then they have to like do maybe there's like kind of like a a set of things we're going to anoint the house with oil here and there and here and we go around and we pray we walk around the house seven times and we read in you know joshua's battle of the jericho or we read in the gospels and then you pray this prayer um interestingly in the new testament that's not the example we have in the new testament during okay so culturally in the new testament times uh exorcists 
there were exorcists at the time, Jewish exorcists, and they tended to have like rituals. They would have to do certain things and then they would do A, B, C, step one, step two, step three, as they were doing their exorcisms. This is as I understand the history. Jesus was unlike that in that he just does his own thing. He doesn't do the same thing every time. He doesn't, as you read an exorcism or he's casting out a demon out of a person, uh, not an area to my knowledge, uh, but a person. You see him um, just doing it in different ways each time. And he does it very simply. He just commands it to come out. The one time when the disciples struggle and they go, why couldn't we cast this demon out? And he says, well, this doesn't come out except by prayer and fasting. And so if there are form, there's a, is there a formula? No. Is there like a special, you do the ABC, uh, you pray, you fast. If simply saying, you know, Lord, I think there's some sort of demonic thing going on in this place, in this house. I rebuke it in the name of Jesus Christ. Get out. If that, if that simple, simple statement of faith and prayer is not effective, then maybe you need to pray and fast in addition to that. This, this is the only tools that I find in scripture. For dealing with that stuff others will have lots of things that they come up with well I, you don't have experience like we do in all these things I'm like, well you're right i don't um and i'm not sure that i always trust everyone else's experiences either so i'm gonna go with scripture um the other issue of course is um whether this haunting is real or if it's like i mean you know you said you know it's demonic so yeah okay let's whether this is a demonic activity or it's something else like it's just a bad reputation a place has or something like that i don't know the answers to those questions so let's just grant that it's real i would pray that doesn't just simply pray. If that doesn't do the thing, pray and fast. Bring together a few, uh, some other believers with you and pray. And then trust the Lord. Um, and uh, that's it. That's it. Hopefully problem solved, God willing. So, yeah. So thank you guys for joining me. This has been a good time for me with you. I enjoy doing the Q&As. I wish I had more ability to do them more frequently. Again, once I can, I'll get back to doing them every Friday. That'll come sometime later this year. Everything will hopefully get back on track. Um, um, otherwise, I will see you guys for another Q&A in two weeks. And I'm behind the scenes working hard on prepping for the final two videos in the Women in Ministry series. There's a, still a mountain of work for me to do. And I have limited capacity for how much work I can do at the moment. So it's hard to predict how long it'll take. Um, but I'll get it done as soon as I can. And I hope it really answers the questions for people. So let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you for your holy word, uh, that your scripture has the answers for us, even if even if I don't always have the knowledge of what your word says about everything. We pray that you would help us to just be more biblical in our thinking, to be more confident, to simply know, well, you said it so I can trust it and move forward in our lives in those areas. We pray for skill, a theme that in today's Q&A, skill at witnessing to non-believers in our lives to be aware of their mental state, their emotional 